purpose-driven organization. Catch that fabulous post. My partner and I just, and I can know just read about it. Next week. You have to watch. All about it. It really changed my perspective. You gotta check it out. There's something incredibly cool about promoting the idea that you can turn waste into a resource to have a product and a service where the waste gets regenerated into something productive. I think that's really compelling to average normal everyday consumers, not just the 5% who buy organic or the 3% who shop at Whole Foods. And there's obviously right now, and maybe it's less so in the States, but in elsewhere, the plastic waste thing is just a massive issue. My name's Jason Graham Nye, and I'm the co-founder and CEO of G Diapers. This is Mission Megaphone, a Growth Network podcast production. We're on a mission to be a megaphone for purpose-driven organizations that are changing the world. G-Diapers is an eco-friendly baby diaper company that my wife and I started 17 years ago. We are from Sydney, Australia, but we moved to Portland, Oregon, raised capital, and uh, created a new category of baby diapers to give parents a alternative away from disposable diapers that have a cup of oil in every one of them and reusable diapers, which can be good, but don't quite fit with the lifestyles of lots of parents. We've got the US business in Europe, but we also have a lot happening in the South Pacific, in the islands and up in Indonesia, which is the epicenter of the global plastic waste crisis and they need solutions quickly. So we are not now living in America, but we lived there for 17 years. We moved home five years ago to get our kids into school here and we continue to work remotely, which at the time was for our board was like, I'm sorry, what? How could you do that? How could you run a business from 10,000 miles away? And then lo and behold, we have a pandemic and now we are so old school at this stuff. We came into this as parents and we were kind of shocked that there was a cup of oil in every disposable diaper. We found a patents and a early version of a product that we were interested in here in Australia. We used that product and add a pair of pants and an insert that was uh, home compostable or commercially compostable. We love the product so much. We licensed the rights to the IP to the rest of the world outside of Australia and New Zealand, which meant we had to move overseas because the patent holder wanted to stay in Australia. We picked Portland, Oregon because it was the green epicenter of the world. We had a young family. We needed to raise them in a, a smaller city rather than say the bigger cities. So that hybrid diaper, the outer pant that was washable, like a reusable diaper, and then an insert that had the performance of disposable was where we started. And we worked with Bill McDonough at Cradle to Cradle. Cradle to Cradle was a book that Bill McDonough wrote. And then he developed a product certification and we were the first consumer packaged good in the world to get cradle to cradle certification, which means that everything that goes into that insert can be returned to earth in a neutral or beneficial way. And cradle to cradle is the underpinnings of the circular economy. So built a business in the US, or we grew, venture backed, lots of ups and downs, which is probably seven episodes worth of content. But at the end of the day, what we realized was the plastic waste problem that back in 2005 when we launched was a nothing. And at the time, our VP of marketing was like, don't talk about plastic waste. It's not a thing, which she was absolutely right. Plastic waste in 2005 was nothing. Now it's just massive. So working with the Australian IP holder, developed a new product with a chassis that's entirely compostable. And now we're really leaning into this, this notion of the circular economy. Just to pause for a second, the linear economy, 200 years of linear economy, you take from the ground, could be oil, you make a product, anything plastic, and you put it back in landfill in a pretty short period of time. That's linear. Circular draws from the inspiration of the natural world. We are the only species on earth that creates waste. 
and that's significant. You can see the impact of that. So you've got a plastic waste crisis on our hands now. We're making more plastic now than ever. COVID has exacerbated that. The hybrid diaper was like a stepping stone. It's like a Prius, right? It's not the electric car. It's close though. And we see that G-Cycle is the Tesla. I'm Elon Musk. No, I'm kidding. But that's the thing. You've seen greenwashing in action. You've seen marketing that's a bit of a stretch. You've seen that consumers have to change behavior, change their thinking, and to buy into all things sustainable. And they've been told a little bit of a lie about how green certain things are. As a manufacturer, what we're doing with G-Cycle is saying, we will sell you diapers. We will collect those diapers. That's on us. We brought it into the world. We're going to take it out of the world. And then we compost it and then we sell the compost. So two lines of revenue, we sell the diapers and make money, we sell the compost and make money. So it's a different business model. And it's a multiplayer game, which is a complete anathema to business. Usual business is like make a product, sell it and forget it. Make a product and then um, you don't have to collaborate. Whereas this is full collaboration. So an example here in Australia, we sell diapers to childcare centers. Uh, a waste hauling company collects the diapers with the childcare centers, food waste and organic waste. The city of Hobart composts the diapers and the compost is sold for $75 a cubic meter. We don't capture the revenue in that second bit, but that's an all team effort. And it means we're not all duplicating. We're not putting extra trucks on the road for the collection. We're not establishing a new compost pile. Right now we're working with how to get G-Cycle up in the US. And America is very difficult for us because there are 30 diaper companies claiming compostability and they're simply not. How we're rising above that is to say, we offer the full service, we will take it back. But it means we've had to rebuild after COVID. We've had to pause our US business because of a supply chain issue. Because in our original product, we shared the same material as face masks. So we've had to pause the US, but we're now building back better in the spirit of your current president. The real trick with circular economy, and this is the big distinction, is it's not scalability, it's replicability. And there's a fine distinction there because investors and normal business people are like, you've got to scale. You've got to scale yesterday. You've got to be massive. You've got to own the market. And for us, it's like, You've got to be place-based, you've got to be sensitive to local communities, and that means that the rollout is by definition slower, but the impact is there. What we've learned over 200 years of the Industrial Revolution is sort of centralised waste management over there, centralised food production over there, distribution with trucks and what have you is great for scaling, but it's a disaster environmentally. So we are very much about distributed models. So having a small composting set up in each community makes far more sense than a massive centrally located composter that sort of replicates what a landfill is. It just doesn't work. I think parents get it intuitively. Incredibly, I think regulators need to get it. Jurisdictions need to get it because the barrier with this regulation piece around composting human waste is, is really interesting. Scientifically, there's no problem composting human waste. It's, it's a nothing. So it's an old cultural thing. I think regulators, they're just so fixed on old ways of thinking. And so disruptors like Uber rolls into a marketplace, ignores laws, completely ignores the law and completely disrupts the tax industry. We choose not to do that. We'd rather just work with jurisdictions and say, look, in London, they spend 15 million pounds a year just on diaper waste. Can we sit with the London government and say, look, there's a better way here? 
relax the law on this composting thing and we'll share the revenue with you and we can solve the problem. So I think when we talk to parents, they intuitively get it. It's the regulators that are like, what? And this is exactly the core of circular economy. So much of circular economy, you've just got to rethink so many systems we've set up and systems thinking is hard. We've had 200 years of the industrial revolution and people think the way it is is the way it will always be, but we, we just cannot keep on this track because we are going to end up with a planet that's not habitable. There's one investor said years ago, oh God, you don't want to change consumer behavior. You never want to be in that business, which is true. If you're a raw investor, it's like, don't change people's behavior. Just make this, make whatever they're doing now, make it easier. Amazon makes shopping easier. Uber makes taxis easier. Don't change people's behavior, which is what we're trying to do. Because if we don't, we're going to have a serious habitability problem on our hands. <laughs> We did not come into this with any CPG experience, but we were in it with our customers. I remember on Christmas day, so we, we rented a house from um, Craigslist. We landed in America. We were like, who's Craig? And it's, what's this list? This was, was a home office. And my wife was on the phone with this customer, this young mum. She was on the phone for about 45 minutes. And then that started planting seeds around doing things differently. So if you're in a classic customer service call center, your goal is to get the customer off the phone as fast as you bloody well can. And we took the different view. And that was the seeds of this gigantic community of G-mums and G-dads. And I think the key to community is authenticity. And you just realize how low the bar is in terms of customer service and trust when you go a little bit more than normal and suddenly you've got this group. So, you know, mums, particularly in America, are isolated. Like, as foreigners living in America, it struck us that you might have been born in Portland and school in Portland, then you go to college somewhere else or your first job's in California, and then you move you move and move and move, which is why when you've got Thanksgiving and uh, Christmas, the travel back home is massive, which isn't the case in Australia. We stick to our little towns. But what that means is when you become a parent, you're very isolated. You don't have a community around you, potentially. Your parents might not be around you. That and a lack of maternity leave means you've got mums particularly in a conundrum. They have a child, they're loving it, and then about three months in, they're kind of getting antsy for something, but maybe not full time. And so we just got hundreds and ultimately 7,000, mostly mums, not being sexist, but mostly mums saying, we want to volunteer for G, what can we do? So we had people writing blogs, they'd, they'd come to the trade shows with us, with their babies. Memorably, Whole Foods in Texas called to say, your product's not moving off the shelf fast enough, we're gonna discontinue you. We sent in 15 to 20 G-mums in their local stores in Texas every week for a month, and they took photos and checked the store sets, took price checks, sent it all to us. We developed a whole analysis and walked into the Texas Whole Foods buyer and said, oh, we know the problem. We've taken a look and our number one selling item is out of stock in all of these stores. So that's why it's not moving. It's very hard to sell a product that you don't stock. And the first question the buyer said was, wait, how did you get this data? It's like, oh, that's our customers. The G-mums have been amazing. And then our CFO got really nervous and said, we should pay them. My wife and I went to the community, they said, do you want to get paid? And it was a 100% no. They're like, no, we, we love doing this. And I think the money would ruin it, which is a fascinating sociological, psychological thing around money and reward and effort. So we built all this chatsky for them. We had coffee cups made especially for them and we made stickers and all sorts of chatsky because then they're part of the team. 
And it's interesting now, we, we've got to kind of rebuild post-COVID. We're going out to raise a little bit of capital and recap the company. And when we talk to investors, it's interesting because they're at a point where if your use of proceeds, if half of it is buying Facebook ads and Instagram ads, they're just not interested because it's just exhausting. And, you know, what they're interested in is true connection, real community, and word of mouth is the gold standard, right? And this translates over into Europe. And we've got a great group in London and up in the Nordic countries. And then fascinatingly, we've got BST, buy, sell, trade on Facebook. So we've got about 200,000 mums on Facebook, but then we've got this buy, sell, trade run by customers for customers. So we haven't been able to sell our product for 12 months. And yet that buy, sell, trade is booming. So the outer pants that are quite cute and fashionable, they're being sold and bought and traded because after three years, you don't need them anymore. And so I'm fascinated by how community works, the power of community over massive marketing budgets. Like big brands can't buy that stuff. Our kids are 19 and 16. We have G-mums of our generation. So their kids are also 19 and 16. They're still engaged with us. They're not customers, but they're engaged. And when we're scrambling around during a pandemic going, oh my God, we're going to have to pause the business. How are we going to do that? They're there. It's extraordinary, the human contact. And again, this is not in the original business plan, right? But pretty incredible because you see the real human spirit. The 2008 recession was massive in America. I think 100,000 baby boutiques went out of business and that was a big channel for us. Babies are us. 95% of all American mothers and fathers go to Babies Are Us for their baby shower. That business goes under. I mean, that was massive. And so we've had headwinds and then COVID was like, oh, this is quite a big headwind. <laughs> so you've got to really think on your feet. And so... We are excited about getting back into the US in a very different way. In Australia, the city of Hobart, they certify the compost to a standard and it's a very high quality standard. And that's $75 a cubic meter. I mean, you're monetizing waste, think about that. It, you have to pay to landfill stuff and it causes CO2 issues. Here you're actually making money from waste. In the South Pacific Islands, it's a different setup. We work with the communities, the communities do the selling, they do the collecting and the communities do the composting and they use the compost because they're agrarian in their culture. In Lombok in Indonesia, which is our biggest neighbor up north of us, Indonesia has more babies than America, gigantic country, but across 5,000 islands. So they don't have any waste infrastructure, very little landfill, and 28% of their marine waste is diapers. So they have a waste crisis on their hands. In Lombok, they get $400 per cubic meter for the compost. So the economics are quite interesting. Now, the challenge we have in the developed world, whether it's the US or Europe, is waste regulations right now say that you can't compost human waste. So that's a barrier. But we're working through those barriers with pilots. So in Oregon, we're working in Corvallis down south near the Oregon State University, and we are developing a pilot to demonstrate that it's safe. One of the things we're looking at is, can we develop a compost to a specific market? So an example is, could we create a compost that's particularly designed for the wine industry. And so we have forward contracts where the wine industry is buying our compost before we even make it. That's a pretty clever business. And so we're thinking about that and it ties into the SDGs, it ties into the kinds of issues we're facing globally. Soil health is huge and we've lost like 55, 60% of our topsoil. So the need for good quality compost is right there. The other strategy in the US is to focus on 
families that compost. It's a really noisy space in the US with babies and diapers. As I said, 30 competitors out there, they're buying Instagram ads, they're buying Facebook ads, they're headed up by celebrities, like it's busy and noisy and parents are exhausted. So our strategy in moving back into the States is actually to focus on the 16% of Americans who compost. You can meet a whole bunch of composters online for a very low cost. And if you're really committed to that lifestyle and you have children, you end up with this real conundrum, like I'm a committed composter, but what do I do about the 5,000 diapers I need? Literally 5,000 diapers per child. How am I going to deal with that? Over 17 years, you know, we started with Whole Foods Market and then Target and Walmart. And then suddenly there's a thing called Amazon arrived and Amazon in our category just stole the show. And it's given us pause for thinking about how do we build back better. And our sense is relying on massive, massive customers can be really terrifying from a cash flow standpoint. Our vision of building back better is very much hyper-targeted, hyper-community-based. It's not going to scale overnight, but we're going to build a lot of community and good repeat business. So... That's our strategy to, to move back into the US. We did very much start with the why in mind, that sort of Simon Sinek idea of what's our why. Like it was a huge step for my wife and I to leave Australia. We had no consumer packaged goods experience. We had a two-year-old and were pregnant. What was our why and what were we doing? And, and I think the why was massive, which has got to be massive to keep you going. It just can't be good enough to say our why is lots of market share or our why is lots of gross margin. Like it's got to be gigantic to keep you going. We've survived the 2008 recession. We survived our biggest customer, Babies R Us, going bankrupt. We survived an action from the FTC. We've survived so many things. So the why is massive. So and we talk about this compelling vision of the future. What does the world look like when we're done? This notion of a circular economy is honestly the only way out of here. And we don't need one more scientist to tell us that it's not looking good. We've got to move into action. So how the world looks is a transition. And transitions are never smooth and easy and not across the board, but the beginning is a transition to a circular economy. So in our space, that means how can we move consumers to a place where the idea of a delivery collection thing is just a normal part of life. It's, their, it's a new social norm. I'm 51 and my generation are very much addicted to low cost, high convenience, which is why Amazon is just a beast and is really suited to my generation. Watching Gen X, Gen Z, there is something about them innately that they get this more than we do. So watching um, people go to the cafe with their own cups, for example, in some geographies is getting quite normal. Now, that's a very inconvenient thing to do. You've got to remember to do it. You take it there. You take it back, you've got to wash it, repeat. Like that's three extra steps, which is a complete anathema to me. Like that's way too inconvenient. So I think generationally getting to that point of more circularity is we've got some tailwinds. For us, what the world looks like is transition to something much more circular and getting these social norms established so that it's just normal to behave in this way and to consume products this way. You've seen it with some things where there's refillable stations and less packaging and that's the beginning and that's exciting. That's the legacy we'd like to, to leave. And it's a long journey and it's, it's really difficult. I mean, this, I'm in the second year of a PhD in the circular economy focused sociologically on why is it the consumers are somewhat of the barrier here. In the academic literature, there's a lot around circular economy business models like product service systems. You know, the, we offer a product and a service. There's a lot around how do you use resources more efficiently, take back programs. The consumer is somewhat understudied and 
uh, misunderstood in a way. I mean, one of the big issues is big brands. So in our category, Procter & Gamble is the biggest. Pampers brand is $10 billion brand. They spend $8 billion a year on marketing. $8 billion of marketing can establish and make a social norm fixed forever and multi-generationally. So this category of disposable diapers started in 1960. And for the last 30 years, 95% market share is disposable diapers. So the reusable diaper category has kind of been decimated. So the focus on the consumer around the transition to the circular economy is, is a big focus of ours. 16 nations in the Pacific Islands, they're going to be the first environmental refugees in the world. So, you know, the, the residents of Vanuatu, they've all got their New Zealand citizenships and they're ready to step off their own land and leave. It's just shocking in my mind. But you've got the Cook Islands, 40% of their waste is diapers. Like it's stunning. And so that's what gets us out of bed every morning. Our goal is to get G-Cycle up and running in the US. So we're not sitting here going, we're going to raise $10 million and launch in Walmart tomorrow. It's like, we just want to get a pilot going. Ideally, it would be around Corvallis. Oregon State University is there. They've got a huge faculty around soil health. And we just want to get a little bit of capital in to do a pilot in that locality. We've got a great partner there that has a, a reusable diaper service. That would be a huge win for us. We can really set up a pilot in any community that is interested because it's not like the problem is unique to one particular area. The problem is everywhere. We would love to engage with listeners who might be living in a community, who'd be interested in hosting a pilot, but we'd also be interested to hear from folks who are interested in funding such a pilot. It's sort of two, $300,000 um, to get a pilot up and going. Best bet is come on to gdiapers.com, send us an email, and we'd love to have a chat. We could talk diapers till the cows come home. We've got in parallel really fascinating pilots in Indonesia at the epicenter of the plastic waste crisis. So the big focus is reconnecting with our community in the US and just figuring out how do we get back to um, selling diapers, building community, and getting plastic waste out of the environment. One fascinating thing I found is in investment world, in VC land, in companies, it's just growth for growth's sake. And the number one goal is grow, grow, grow. And if you think about biomimicry, this area of study where how can we mimic nature to create more sustainability, nothing in the natural world grows the way we expect companies to grow except weeds in a garden that then take over the garden and destroy it or in human health cancer. It's a very odd thing that we are so obsessed with growth and yet we don't step back and say, what does that growth do for us as human beings, for our soul? Like we don't examine that. And I think it's worthy of examination. You've been listening to Mission Megaphone, a Growth Network podcast production. Follow this podcast for more incredible stories from purpose-driven organizations and individuals you'll want to meet. To learn more about this show or G-Diapers, please check out our show notes. I'm Linz Florin. Our producers are Sari Wienerman and Jeffrey Morris. Production manager is Maura Murphy Barras. Original music by Nicholas Fournier. Promotional support from Marsha Ord. Website by Nick Brodnicki. Thanks for listening. Until we meet again, keep searching for inspiration. And when you find it, make sure to pass it on. If you've ever wanted to edit your own videos or podcasts, but were overwhelmed by how complicated the software was, you are in luck. Descript, or Descript, is a magical tool that allows you to edit text as if you're editing a Google Doc. We use it for this show and use it collaboratively with clients and co-producers on all of our shows. And trust me, it's easy to learn. 
Click our affiliate link in the show notes to discover the magical tool for yourself. And if you want some guidance on how to learn and use it, please sign up for our Magic of Descript newsletter.